Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with author Jerry Westerson, whose latest medieval noir mystery, The Deepest Grave, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Jerry. Good afternoon. Would you start us off by playing an excerpt from your book? Sure thing. A hand tapped Crispin's shoulder from behind as he was finishing his business against an alley wall. Can't a man take a piss without being harassed, he growled. Your Crispin guest, said the male voice. Crispin finished, set his shot hardies to rights, and turned. What the hell do you want? But then he shut his mouth when he recognized that the young man was a priest in a dark gown. I had no wish to disturb you, but... I could not find you. I looked on the shambles. I am situated the same place where I have been for the last four years, my lord, on the shambles in an old poulter's shop. I used to be above a tinker's, but it burned down. Uh, So I have been told. Crispin set off in that direction, hoping to make it before the streets got too dark. But of course the sun lingered longer in these warmer months as the beginning of summer. It wasn't likely to grow dark until near Compline. The priest scuttled behind him catching up to walk beside him. A client. He needed them. But clerics, oh, they gave him the shivers. There had once been a day when he could trust most of them, but that day seemed to have disappeared along with his knighthood. He glanced at the man sidelong. And why do you seek me, father? I, I scarcely know how to begin. At the beginning is generally the best, but... But I do not know uh, when it began, only that it had, and and I fear the answer when it comes. Crispin stopped slowly and turned to the man. You speak in riddles. Do I? I it was not my intention, Master Guest, only that uh, well, I can barely explain it myself. Crispin rubbed his clean-shaven chin. I think a drink is in order. Come. He led the way just up to the shambles, but turned sharply and headed up Gutter Lane to the Boar's Tusk. He caught Gilbert's eye as he entered, and the tavern-keeper quickly deposited drink for them. He did not stay to talk with Crispin as he usually did, but curiously noted his clerical companion. The priest settled in and took up the cup, drinking thirstily. Crispin sipped at his. As usual, he sat with his back to the wall and a view of the smoky room with its sagging rafters and dingy walls. Now then... What is it that concerns you and needs my help, my lord? The priest poured more and drank another dose before he finally set the cup down. Close and in the light, Crispin could study his dark gown, threadbare in some spots, patched in others. The priest had a square jaw, darkened by beard stubble. His eyes were small but glowed with an intensity of fear. His hair could only be described as luxurious, black, in thick waves, (laughs) unlike Crispin's own dark hair that hung lankly nearly to his shoulders. The priest's facial features were pleasant and slightly patrician. Crispin wondered vaguely which noble family he might have come from. He thought the man would be just as home in mail as in his clerical garb. It is horrific, Master Guest, he said, shaking his head. "I, I can scarce speak of it. He leaned into the table and spoke confidentially. His heavy brows clutched together over his eyes like fists. 
They walk at night. Crispin leaned in. Who does? Them. The, the, the corpses. Thanks, Jerry. Now, without spoiling the story, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who Crispin is and just a tiny bit about what happens after the scene that they've just heard? Well, a Crispin guest is a disgraced knight turned detective on the mean streets of 14th century London. So this is sort of my take on a hard-boiled detective in the Middle Ages. Uh, He used to be a knight and a lord, and he uh, had it all going there at court. Um, But when Richard II's father died, who was supposed to be the the next king, uh, Richard, at 10 years old, was going to take the throne. And Crispin already knew well the people of court, and his uh, mentor, uh, John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, uh, he felt he was better suited to be king rather than a 10-year-old boy, so Crispin threw in his lot with uh, other traitors who were trying to overthrow Richard. And the plot failed, and all the other conspirators were executed, and Crispin was in line to meet that fate as well. But his mentor spoke for him, saved his life, but he was sent uh, on the streets of London with nothing but his uh, the coat on his back. His his uh, title was, was stripped, his wealth was taken, his lands were taken, and he had to reinvent himself as the tracker, my idea of a medieval detective. So he comes with a chip on his shoulder, like uh, most um, of your hard-boiled detectives, uh, he's a tough fighter, a tough talker, a hard drinker, and a sucker for a dame in trouble. So that's that's Crispin, and he has a, a, an assistant. He has a, uh, a an apprentice who started out as his 11-year-old servant named Jack Tucker, who was a an orphan boy on the streets of London, and Crispin sort of took him in, saved his life, and he, he offered himself as Crispin's servant. Now he's a, his, his uh, apprentice. And, uh, and now he's a great deal older because we're on the 11th book in this series. So Crispin has uh, been hired by this priest to investigate these strange goings-on at St. Modwin's Church. And uh, he always gets himself involved in some sort of a religious relic or a venerated object, but in this case, it's it's something odd happening at this church, and he's going on to investigate that. So could you talk a little bit about how you came up with the character of Crispin in the first place? Well, there are a lot of great medieval mysteries out there, and of course the, the queen of all medieval mystery writers, uh, Alice Peters, who invented Brother Cadfell, and uh, that was sort of the first, but a lot of the um, the medieval... Uh, detectives were monks or nuns, and this was this was a natural choice because they were the the few that could read and write. So, and they had a little time on their hands as well. But I didn't I didn't want that. I wanted something a little different. I wanted a, a man of action. I wanted someone who would get into a few brawls, get into some street chasing, things like that. And I came across this idea of a medieval noir. Uh, that's how I, I, I call the series. 
and I was looking for something that would be just a little more action-packed, but still be true to the time period. So uh, Crispin, as a private eye, is what he is, he hires himself out to find things, and, and while he's doing that, he stumbles into murders. And I read, maybe it was on your website, maybe it was in uh, another interview, that when you were growing up, you grew up in a household that was uh, interested, devoted, obsessed with medieval history. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, rabid Anglophiles is how I put it before. Both parents are very interested in history, mostly medieval history, English history. And, uh, you know, we'd have conversations around the dinner table about the the monarchy of, of, of England, and I, I knew far more kings and queens of England than I did presidents of the United States, so I, it was just, uh, you know, growing up with it. You you got it by osmosis. It was just part of, of everyday life. We had lots of great books on our shelves of fiction and nonfiction, and when you were bored, you just pulled one down in the olden days, and <laughs> you read a book. So it was naturally what I was going to fall into when I decided to, to put writing as a career choice. And uh, it was going to be something medieval. But uh, it wasn't necessarily going to be mystery. That sort of happened later. And what in particular about the medieval period fascinates you? Well, I think it's, it's a lot of things. We, we tend to think of the pomp and, and the, you know, the, the festivities and the clothing and all of those things. But it's also the... the class society, the, the different uh, stratus, uh, stratifying uh, levels of society, uh, and how difficult it was to move in those. And, and that's why I took away all of Crispin's um, safety nets. He, he wasn't allowed to go to court. He wasn't allowed to talk to anyone or get help from anyone in his social class. So he had to figure out how to work in the lower classes with those people. And uh, it was just a really interesting exercise in putting yourself in, in the shoes of someone like him who defined himself by his, his level in society and how he, he couldn't do that anymore. So there it, it, it was a lot of those things. And also the wonderful superstitions and uh, the religious fervor, it all goes into a great pot for, for especially writing a mystery. So you can have all kinds of, you know, stabbings and poisonings and, and things like that. And, people, and, and because I always involve a religious relic, now you have that extra element of mysticism and uh, religious fervor. And what have you found to be the most useful resources for researching the period? Well, uh, it used to be before the internet was really very good and had a lot of things that were uploaded. Uh, now there's a lot of archives that are uploaded online. Um, I, you know, you had to go to university libraries. I spent a lot, a lot of time in university libraries finding the books that I needed to do my research. Um, and I would also, I could find the archives online, the archives in England. Um, but all I could basically do was email them and ask them specifically the things that I, I needed and they would they were just so happy I could just picture these people in these little archives nothing to do and finally they you know bing they got an email you know 
<laughs> so they were very generous to me, very kind, and they did lots of Xeroxing and, and snail mailing these things back to me. You know, and then it just got a little easier as the years gone by. Uh, there's a lot more uploaded to the Internet, but I still find that I, I still need to go back to the books. I have to go back to the universities and find the, the information that I need. You, you can't just use anybody's research. You need to find good good research that uh, other medievalists find useful and helpful. And during the course of writing the series and all the research and the emails and you're looking at books directly yourself, what did you come across in studying the period that surprised you the most? <laughs> well, I find, you know, when you're doing research, do not ignore the footnotes, people. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things in the footnotes. And one of the things that I found in the footnotes was I was, I was looking up um, uh, accidental deaths in London, you know, what people died of. And, uh, you know, in, in the footnotes, it's the women died of drowning a lot of the time because they were the ones doing the washing. They were the ones carrying the water. You know, children also died from drownings and, and, and rivers. That made sense. But when it came to the men, the men died from falling out of windows. Now, uh, I thought that was that was interesting. And and why was that happening? And in fact, there's a word for it, defenestrating. So falling out of a window happens a lot, I guess. And so I, I looked that, had to go do some further research, looking that up. And apparently what happens is, um, especially in London, they, they built, they didn't build outward in the city because that, that land did not belong to the city, belonged to private owners. So they built upward. Uh, in the first skyscrapers, right? Three stories high. So they built upward. And of course, in Crispin's day, they didn't have, you had to be rich to have glass in the windows. So you just had shutters. So I can imagine a man, second, third floor, he wakes up in the middle of the night, maybe he's been drinking, and he, you know, wants to accede to a call of nature, and he goes to the window rather than going down that rickety ladder to the privy in the back. And he opens the shutters and misjudges. <laughs> so he's literally caught dead with his pants down. So that that was a, a fun fact. I haven't yet put it in a book, but I, I think it would be a fun addition sometime. And were there real-life antecedents for, for Crispin in the sense of being essentially a tracker and investigator for hire that you ran across? No, that's purely my fiction, but it, it's the what if a, a person like him with his intelligence, his uh, his skills with fighting, his facility with languages, what would a man like him do to satisfy his intellect and his honor that he's tarnished? What could he do and, but hire himself out to, to try to be um, the knight he no longer is. So there were um, there weren't investigators per se. Uh, the the coroner would go out and investigate the crimes, but then he would actually uh, have the people uh, nearest the the crime that happened, and it usually happened within the parish, and everybody usually knew each other. So he'd he'd uh, get the people uh, like three people, three men to investigate that crime, and that would all be brought to the, the sheriffs and, and, the, and the coroner, and they would d decide who it was that was guilty. And sometimes that person um, 
when confronted, confessed. It was, it's all part of the morality of the age. Some have labeled this period as sort of a golden age for the historical mystery. They're, you know, set in almost all corners of the world and almost all periods. Do you agree that there has been an increased interest on the part of both readers and publishers in the historical mystery? And if so, what do you consider the appeal to be? I don't, I don't know if there's, if there's a growing interest. I, I kind of hope there is, but I don't know that there is because... Uh, I think it, it it wanes. It 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 goes up and down. Uh, the Tudor period is always very popular. Everybody likes Henry VIII and and Anne Boleyn and and that period. And of course, the medieval period is a thousand years. It's it's from 500 A.D. to approximately 1500. So we're talking about a lot of time um, that you can choose. I chose this time because of the time of Chaucer. Uh, you know, there's a lot of changes going on, of course, in Richard II, his his very troubled reign. Um, but, you know, you could certainly go all the way up to Henry VIII, that's still considered medieval, and you could go back down to, you know, you can hit Henry II, uh, you know, the, the protagonist of The Lion in Winter, if you're familiar with that play, that movie. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to choose from. So I don't, I don't know if it's a, the most popular. It's, it's, people are always interested in it. Uh, they like King Arthur, which is fantasy medieval, but um, that that's it. It's I, I I would wish that more people were interested in it, but I fear that with all the other competing things that that grab a reader's attention. In other words, there's there's books, but there's also um, games, video games, and there's also streaming, and there's all these other competitions. Uh, the we're competing for the reader's time, and that's one of the things. And perhaps uh, anything of an historical nature sort of gets lost. There are still the loyal readers, of course, but it's it's hard, I think, to get newer, younger readers interested. And you've had a number of different careers before you became a writer. So I hope this is an accurate quote. You know, would-be actress, graphic artist, theology teacher tasting host and tour guide for a winery, newspaper reporter. Uh, which of those, uh, if any, most influence the way you approach writing fiction? Looks like I can't keep a job, doesn't it? No, um, <laughs> actually, um, I was a graphic artist for some 15 years in Los Angeles, and uh, that was a wonderful job. I got to do all kinds of things in all kinds of studios and different um, advertising agencies. And I think that was very helpful for for teaching me that, especially when you have to endure rejections, as one does, uh, in in uh, trying to sell your books and your manuscripts, uh, it kind of teaches you to not take it personally, that what you're producing is is a product, and you have to move on. And when you get finally get a contract with the publisher, you have editors, of course, and your your editor is going to recommend that you change some things occasionally. And again, you you don't take it personally. You you it's it's something you're trying to make this product better, and you want to listen to professionals. And I think that was very helpful. Also, being a reporter for eight years, um, I think that helps to me help me to get get down to the facts, get down to the point of the story. Um, you had 1,500 words to put a beginning, middle, and end in a feature article. 
and I and I think that was very helpful for for the whole sort of idea of a novel of of getting to the point and not lingering too long on on things that aren't important. And you also write urban fantasy. Which is easier, urban fantasy or historical mystery? <laughs> well, I think the urban fantasy, urban fantasy or uh, paranormal romance is easier. Um, number one, it, it doesn't have that, that heavy lifting of, of the heavy-duty research that you do with the medieval stuff. Because, you know, the, the medieval people like reading medieval mysteries because they like learning something, but they also like that in the, in the medieval setting, and they like uh, the mystery. But they want, they assume that the writer is getting the history right. And so that's, that's your unspoken contract with the reader. So I expect to get that right. It's not that there's no research in the paranormal romance. There, there was, but it is a fantasy. So therefore, you can take whatever research you have about whatever you know, sort of paranormal creatures we're talking about, and create your own uh, backstory of it. A werewolf, for instance. You know, my werewolves are different from somebody else's than the werewolves down the road. You know, so um, uh, it, it's it's a whole lot easier in terms of, of research. And finally, I ran across a reference that at one point you were working up another historical mystery involving a court jester as detective. Is that something that's progressed? Uh, that is still in the background. I, I have something like three more Crispin Guest novels to write, and then the series is at a close. I always had a, an end point for the series, and it was always a year that I was aiming for. Those who know Richard II's... Uh, Rain, we'll know what year that is. Um, but uh, I, I always had an endpoint. So this other one is uh, a Tudor era, Henry VIII um, period mystery series. And uh, I'm still toying with it, still doing research. It takes a while to really develop a new book. Sometimes it takes something like two years to really develop a new series because there's a lot of a lot of things you have to clear up, you know, who are going to be the minor characters, who are going to be returning. Um, so it's taking a while. And this it's supposed to be his, uh, his real court jester will be the detective. So we'll see, we'll see how, how that pans out in the scheme of things. Something to look forward to. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jerry, and, and thank you, listeners. The book, again, is The Deepest Grave by Jerry Westerson, published by Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next PW Litcast. <laughs>